It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Science and Solutions Show. We're coming to you remotely from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the PZE Community Show and the Science and Solutions Show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the shows. My name is Kay Wenigal. And this week's episode is a highlights reel from the Energy Minister's Summit, an online event hosted by the Smart Energy Council, which brought together seven state and territory energy ministers to discuss what is happening in our transition towards renewable energy. I thought it was a really great event, especially because it's state and territory ministers who are actually making the critical decisions and working right at the proverbial coalface of this transition. The ministers were... Anthony Lynham, the Queensland Minister for Natural Resources, Mines and Energy. Bill Johnson, West Australian Minister for Mines, Petroleum, Energy and Industrial Relations. Dan Van Holst-Palakan, the South Australian Minister for Energy and Mining. Guy Barnett, Tasmanian Minister for Energy. Lily D'Ambrosio, Victorian Minister for Energy, Environment and Climate Change. And Matt Keane, the New South Wales Minister for Energy and Environment, both had recorded sessions. And finally, Shane Rattenbury, the ACT Minister for Climate Change and Sustainability. Let's kick it off with Shane Rattenbury, who put the whole discussion in the context of the overall goal of putting some kind of limit on global warming. Today, one of the numbers that's very much a theme in my remarks is the number two. Because, of course, two degrees, I guess that is the reminder of what the bottom line is for us all when it comes to why we're having so many of these discussions. I mean, we obviously want to try and keep it at 1.5 degrees, but certainly two is the threshold when it really comes to the advice we're getting from the scientists of where we need to land. And that's why we need to cut our emissions. It's why we need to deal with our energy sector because it's where we can make the biggest emissions cuts the most quickly. And I think sometimes in all the politics and the argy-bargy and the technical details of the grid, we do lose sight of that fundamental goal of why we need to make these steps. That underlying goal is getting more renewables into the system, having a smarter grid and making sure that politically we're creating the rules and the mechanisms to enable us to get more renewables into the system and therefore deliver the emission reductions. I think that was a perfect starting point from Shane, but of course it depends whether and how we're going to get there that matters. So let's start by hearing the commitments made by the ministers so far about reducing their emissions. It's worth bearing in mind that the IPCC reckons that to keep global warming within 1.5 degrees C, we'd need to cut global emissions by 45% by 2050. We're starting off in Queensland with Energy Minister Anthony Lynham. Now, five years ago, when we were elected, uh, there was very little renewable energy in the state, 5% or less. And we made a commitment to 50% renewable energy by 2030. 
Now, the end of this year, we'll be over 20% renewable energy. So we've had to have a very quick ramp up to get to where we are now. But we're well on track to get to 50% renewable energy by 2030. Next up, a recorded message from the Victorian Energy Minister, Lily D'Ambrosio. When we first came to government in 2014, renewables accounted for around 10% of Victoria's power generation. We began by establishing renewable energy targets at 25% by 2020 and 40% by 2025. We then extended the target to 50% by 2030 following our re-election in 2018. Our renewable energy targets have been a huge success. They have sent a clear market signal, provided investment certainty and driven record growth in renewable energy. Victoria is now the leading state for renewable energy jobs, with nearly one-third of all jobs in the sector based here. And now, West Australian Energy Minister Bill Johnston. There's a transition underway in the energy sector, and it's really quite exciting. In some days of the week here in Western Australia, more than 100% of the energy used by uh, West Australian families is being produced by renewable energy. And these uh, new technologies uh, create new challenges and require new solutions. And that's why the government in Western Australia is implementing our energy transformation strategy. So far, we've uh, released and implementing our DER roadmap. Uh, Those changes are are happening now to adapt this grid for this high renewable, high distributed energy uh, future. Although WA doesn't have any renewable energy targets, we did identify recently in a BZE podcast that They are working on green hydrogen and also have quite a lot of rooftop solar, as well as large-scale solar plants. Next up, we have New South Wales Minister Matt Keane, who also sent in a recorded message. Second, we developed a net zero plan, which is fully funded with a $2 billion investment and a roadmap to cut emissions by 35% on the way to net zero emissions by 2050. And just to clarify... New South Wales government has just recently announced that they're aiming for the initial 35% reduction to be met by 2030, which is in line with holding global warming to 2 degrees, but unfortunately not 1.5 degrees. And next up is Tasmania Minister for Energy, Guy Barnett, from the wettest and windiest corner of Australia, with, of course, the natural advantage of a long history of hydropower. So we do have our Renewable Energy Action Plan And that action plan includes a 100% target to be fully self-sufficient in renewable energy by 2022. And we're on track for that. And then the target to reach it um, by 2040, 200%. And uh, we have plans uh, to legislate for that target by the end of this year. And uh, we're on track and on progress uh, to do that. So some good news from Tasmania heading beyond zero emissions, so to speak, with 200% renewable energy, half of which could be exported to the mainland. And our final situation update is from Shane Rattenbury in the ACT, which has already achieved net 100% renewable energy and is looking to go even further. Uh, In terms of future commitments, with having got to 100% renewable electricity, we've now started to focus on our transport emissions, which in the future will be more than 60% of our emissions profile. And you may have seen the recent announcement of the partnership with ARENA. This is a project where the ACT government is going to introduce 50 new Nissan LEAF vehicles with bi-directional charging capability. Uh, And 
we're really excited about this because it is really about looking to unlock the potential for electric vehicles to help the grid. And we think this is a great demonstration project that is also going to demonstrate the economic benefits there. So the states really are leading the way with targets well ahead of the federal government's target of just 26 to 28% by 2030. But when you look at what the states are actually doing, are they on track to reach these targets? The ACT, we've just heard, has reached its target of 100% renewable energy this year. So well done, ACT. And Tasmania is right behind it with its target of 100% by 2022, which they've just about achieved already. South Australia has made a great start and is likely to achieve its target of 100% by 2030, and it's already over 50% there. Queensland is at about 15% at the moment, so significantly short of its target of 50% by 2030. New South Wales has just recently proposed a target of 35% by 2030, but it needs to do a huge amount as it's just sitting at 17% at the moment. West Australia, as we know, doesn't have a target, but it's about 20% renewable energy currently. The Northern Territory has a target of 50% by 2030, but currently is at about 5%, and unfortunately the Northern Territory Minister couldn't make this. Perhaps the 3 gigawatt sun cable project will go ahead and be completed by 2030 to help it meet its obligations. Victoria is on track to meet its target of 50% by 2030, and is currently sitting at about 24%. Another topic that the Smart Energy Council dived into was the COVID-inspired federal cabinet arrangements, which are obviously really important, given there is such a disconnect between the desire for renewable energy at state and federal levels. So let's kick off the questions with one from John Grimes, the CEO of the Smart Energy Council. Wayne, I might just kick off with a question, just a general question, if I may, and that is that, you know, the the new arrangements, we went from the COAG Energy Council, the new arrangements are are a subcommittee of the National Cabinet, uh, and in that process, you know, the kind of the Cabinet confidence rules apply. So, you know, there's really very little visibility for those in the industry to get a sense of what's happening. Do you think that's that's a problem, or do you think that actually that's a bit of a minor issue, that actually it does provide a forum, and, and you're sort of optimistic about the opportunities for collaboration and and development? Look, I think the opportunity, John, if you look on the positive side of the equation, the energy ministers have still got a whole lot of sort of statutory responsibilities under the National Energy Law. The expectation at this stage is there will still be two meetings a year where the energy ministers will deal with that more formal agenda. And then the positive opportunity in this is we're now looking at meeting quite frequently. We don't have an exact time on, you know, sort of every six weeks or even more frequently to sort of keep issues moving. So I think there's a lot of opportunity in that for the ministers to keep issues moving and to keep pressure on and to sort of build more common ground. What it does rely on, though, John, is that it is being entirely led by the Commonwealth. And so I think that's one of the challenges or the risks here is to see how the Commonwealth leads it. And a question everybody wants to ask about gas and Shane Rattenbury answers. Our work at the moment is really to advocate for rebuilding better, for investing in in things that are going to create, uh, uh, you know, economic activity, but also deliver an economic 
you know, dividend in terms of lower power prices and lower emissions over the long term. Reading the tea leaves, uh, you know, I, I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, that, that the federal government might be on a path to really provide substantial support to the gas industry, the natural mm. gas industry, as opposed to the renewables industry. What do you think is the, is the most useful thing we as advocates and the industry can do to promote our case before any, any final decisions are made? It does seem from the work that's coming through that there is a window for about the next eight years or so where gas has the potential to be very profitable. And we're very concerned by that. And I think the way the federal government is constructing its post-COVID reconstruction committee and the agenda around that, it does seem that gas is going to get a real push. For me, the issue is that I think that profitability that's going to be available to the gas sector is going to impact on consumers. And highlighting the analysis of that is probably a place where I think we can crack open the discussion beyond the, the climate discussion. Because I think we're in an era where everybody knows that gas is just another fossil fuel. And the more gets pumped into the system in the next decade, obviously that's problematic. And the other thing we know is that once people have made the investments, they will fight like hell to protect their investments. And so I think there's a real risk there that that uh, embedded investment will become a, another vested interest that will drive policy in this country. We then got a very different perspective from the West Australian Energy Minister, Bill Johnston. I'll make a comment about gas. I mean, obviously, we're not connected to the, uh, the East Coast gas network and we don't want to be. Most gas that's uh, produced in Western Australia is exported. Now, I think people need to understand exactly what that means. That means that the, 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 there's a customer somewhere who wants that gas. Until that demand for methane goes away, then the same amount of gas is going to be produced somewhere in the world. And don't forget that the Paris Accord actually says that the carbon emissions from China and India and other of our uh, partners in Asia is going to increase over time, not reduce, going to increase. That, that's actually in the Paris Accord. So the question is, what do the countries that are buying our gas want to do? Now, in respect of Korea and, and Japan, they have an aggressive policy to move to hydrogen. But at the moment, they, they want to use blue hydrogen, that is from methane. Australia, Western Australia will respond to that because that's the demand of our customers. And, and you know, just, just, just like hydrogen plan as well. Energy producers in the Middle East are, are thinking about their future. What does it look like in a, in a carbon-constrained world? Yeah. I think the challenge is incumbent on all of us to say, how do we drive down really aggressively the, the cost of renewable-based hydrogen? Absolutely. Because that, that, that not only helps solve the problem, but actually gives us an economic future as, as, a, as an energy exporting... Uh, and that's why in Western Australia, we have the globally leading position in hydrogen because... You know, with all due respect to Tasmania, you know, 1.5 gigawatts of energy is enormous for Tasmania, for Australia, but our energy exports far exceed that, and that's why we're talking about 30 gigawatts of renewable hydrogen in Western Australia. Um, the, uh, the chat function's gone off, uh, so, <laughs> so well done, Bill. If you've just tuned in, we're bringing you the best of the recent Smart Energy Council Energy Ministers Summit. 
So let's jump to a conversation about the role in planning in the energy transition, starting with a question from Wayne Smith. One of the bugbears uh, for, for the Smart Energy Council over a long period of time, one thing we've never really understood, is why the National Electricity Objectives doesn't have a, a provision for reducing emissions. Um, why is that? Um, how, do we, uh, how do we make that happen? Why isn't it the case that uh, emissions reduction is absolutely central to what the COAG Energy Council or whatever it is now um, is, is, is doing? I'd welcome any thoughts on that. Maybe you, Shane Brattenbury first, maybe. Three word answer, the federal government. They just, they won't, they just don't want to change. They would not include this in the energy objectives. Are you saying that this basically, um, that they've got the, um, the ability just to block that change? Yep. Okay. Okay. And, and Wayne, what I'd say is that uh, I, I outlined that uh, in October we'll be uh, publishing our new foundation regulatory framework. Yes. And one of the changes in the foundation regulatory framework will be a carbon objective for the Western Australian electricity system. As I say, um, you know, we, there is no question about the need to act on carbon emissions and each nation needs to take its responsibility for its uh, behaviour in the energy system and that's why we're including uh, carbon as a question, uh, as part of our foundation regulatory framework. Is there a way to get around the federal government's uh, blocking? Uh, of the national electricity objectives? Maybe, or, maybe Wayne, there's, maybe, maybe Wayne, there's, there's a bit of a, a, maybe a, an associated question. Can I just sort of mm. you know, take mm. that thought and expand it? And that is that the, you know, the integrated system plan set out a couple of scenarios. One of them really is a step change scenario, which mm. would see really a, a, a rapid transition, but driven by economics and engineering, right? Is there anything to stop the, the, the states from just unilaterally saying, right, we're just gonna implement this? It's a really interesting question, John, and I think it goes to, back to Wayne's question, in trying to work out what we can achieve, you know, having a debate about having a, a, a climate objective or an emissions objective in the, in the national energy law is one we can't win, but the ISP is one place where we can make progress. And for me, if we can get things like the transmission infrastructure right, uh, then that sort of takes the ideological debate out of it to some extent because we just facilitated the, the ability of the industry to get on with it. And I think given the price point we're seeing renewables at now and all of those things, we can actually, frankly, get around the federal government by getting the right infrastructure in place and just getting on with it. And so probably from a state and territory point of view, that is a better place to focus our energy. And to give us some more detail on what that really means in practice, here is the South Australian Minister, whose state has been a real leader in facilitating a significant ramp-up of renewables in the grid. It's not, it's not just about generation anymore. Everything is actually about the harnessing of the renewable energy so that it works for consumers, whether that be through improved interconnection, whether that be through improved storage or improved demand management, uh, or some of the more emerging things like um, the, the harnessing of electric vehicles and hydrogen and things like that. It's actually about making it work. One of the things that we are uh, facing in South Australia, I know Western Australia has this challenge as well, is the penetration of rooftop solar. We have about a third, a bit over a third of all houses in South Australia have rooftop solar. Now, we can manage the large, you know, 200 kilowatt and above type facilities, uh, but we can't manage the smaller ones yet. So we need to get on top of that. In South Australia, 
uh, we have a, a looming net negative demand at certain times of the year, certain times of the day. Um, if the grid reaches net negative demand, which uh, under current operation is forecast in South Australia only a few years away, that's not a political issue, that's not a market issue, it's not an environmental issue, it's actually a physics and engineering issue. So we will have to curtail feed into the grid at certain times. Doing nothing is not an option in this area. But on the bright side, while we're under pressure to, to take some steps very quickly, there are some other things that we're doing which will address this into the longer term. Interconnection, electric vehicle harnessing, hydrogen, demand management, storage. I mean, one of the best ways for a household to not be curtailed with their feed-in would be to have a battery and put their surface electricity in their own battery instead and then use that electricity in the evening rather than out of a grid. So there's a lot of things that we're working on uh, which will address this issue, but we have found ourselves uh, under great time pressure, so we're having to deal with, with some of those things. And the Queensland Minister, Anthony Lynham, explained how his capital city is dealing with the challenge of distributed rooftop solar. We're talking about the solar rooftops. Well, Cleanco owns now our pumped hydro storage at Wyvernhoe, which is not small, 570 megawatts pumped hydro. And the rooftops of Brisbane power the pumped hydro. So essentially in the middle of the day, uh, Cleanco is harvesting renewable energy from the rooftops of Brisbane at you know, zero to minimal cost, pumping that up at night time during peak, it's driving uh, peak consumption here in Brisbane and Cleanco is doing very well out of that arrangement. And what about having an undersea cable between Tasmania and the mainland and using the big battery, the hydro that Tasmania has, which complements the mainland intermittent resources perfectly? The independent uh, energy regulator, AEMO, released the integrated system plan and according to that independent uh, report we had deemed uh, that the first cable, 750 megawatts, would be 2027-28, and then the second one, 2031, uh, going forward. So that's, and that's a 750 megawatts as well. In terms of the decision-making, we're in the planning and approval process. Again, that the federal government's provided $56 million towards this uh, national infrastructure project uh, through that development approval phase, which would conclude in 2023. Uh, with a financial decision, investment decision at that time. And that's the Marinus link explained. And now the potential interconnector between South Australia and New South Wales. Yeah, well, look, it is a very exciting project. It's important for both of our states. Uh, the cost of building this project has certainly uh, increased significantly uh, over the last few years, but importantly, so have the benefits to consumers increased uh, you know, very significantly also. So we're, we're, we're optimistic, we're hopeful that the AER uh, will, will determine that this is in the best interest of consumers. It will also be good in many other ways which the AER doesn't have in its remit when it, when it assesses RIT-T proposals. I mean, we, we've got quite a few renewable energy generation and storage projects on the South Australian side of the interconnector on paper, lining up to fall in behind this interconnector. And uh, when AER, you know, optimistically speaking, gives it the approval as a regulated asset, 
these projects will, will move forward with their development. And while, of course, there'll be times that we're very grateful to receive additional electricity into South Australia from New South Wales, as we already swap it with Victoria, we will export far more renewable energy into New South Wales from South Australia than we will ever import uh, from New South Wales. Now, now that, that then starts to become a massive benefit outside of the, the strict RIT-T test. So we're then able to more um, reliably deliver renewable energy into New South Wales than they can do just for themselves because we are generating it in a different place with different weather, different wind, with different sun. Um, that helps them with the retirement of gas, so, sorry, retirement of coal, I should have said, retirement of coal, not only from an emissions perspective, but also um, from a security perspective. The final question is about hydrogen. Wayne poses the question about the export hydrogen market. Look, renewable hydrogen, there's a lot of excitement about that. Do you think that's a realistic option to build an export industry for renewable hydrogen in South Australia? Yeah, that's a big question for a very, very quick answer, Wayne. I'll do, I'll do my best. Yes, it is. I, mean, I have a very strong view that, that, yes, that opportunity is there for us. We need to start getting... Uh, some domestic demand going because hydrogen production is so scalable. So we can we can produce a bit of hydrogen for a bit of demand, a bit more demand, a bit more hydrogen, and that will be the way for us to lift up to genuinely high volume green hydrogen export opportunity. You know, it's it's 10 to 20 years away, but we're starting as we speak uh, on the ground to develop that opportunity. And here is Queensland's vision for green hydrogen. Well, I, I think there's a bold, bright future for hydrogen. I think the days of roadmaps for hydrogen, plans for hydrogen, they've been done. Let's get it going. Like, like let's let really get it going. As Ross Garner said, to transport hydrogen is quite difficult and expensive, which means that we can garnish hydrogen from solar keep it here within our nation where it's very, very cheap and encouraging manufacturing from overseas to re-establish itself back into our nation because we have cheap energy. And a wonderful comment from Wayne from the Smart Energy Council to summarise the summit. I actually think this is the best collection of energy ministers possibly that we've ever had at a state and territory level. I know that there's good relationships between the different uh, ministers uh, and between the different officials um, at a state and territory level, the different offices, even where there's political differences between them. And so it's a really interesting moment in time. Um, and we've also got a bunch of ministers who are really experienced in their portfolios now. So there you have the salient points out of the Energy Minister's Summit. It was provided by the Smart Energy Council. And if listeners would like to find out more and get a full wrap-up of the summit, you could go to the Smart Energy Council's website. The Beyond Zero Science and Solutions show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher, so please subscribe to help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next week. 
Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter. Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.